is the theme verse as we start this brand new series called Secret Christians. Uh, this is the theme verse that's going to carry us through the next few weeks. And I want us to read the verse together so we can kind of begin to kind of get this into our mind. This is going to be at the end of three weeks. You're going to have memorized a verse. Hooray, right? There's going to be a verse you're going to memorize. This is Matthew 5, 14. Let's read it together out loud. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. Let's read it one more time out loud together. You online, go ahead and say it out loud wherever you're sitting. You ready? You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. I even love, and I'll read to you the the message paraphrase. This is Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this verse. He goes on to say that there's another way to put it, because he's talking a lot about what Jesus is talking about here, is that you're here to be light, bringing out the God colors of this world. God is not a secret to be kept. Talking about our role, our function. So this is, this is the heart of the series. Now I want to tell you where this came from and why we're diving into this is that about a year ago, I heard a phrase and I wrote it down. It was just at a, I was in a teaching conference, heard a phrase, wrote it down. It was based on a study. And this study, I had to go back and read because the phrase bothered me so much. So I had to go back and read the actual study. It was a huge study done by Pew Research Group in 2019 to, to, to still bring me to the understanding of why. Why would this be true? The question we're asking right now in this series is, are you a secret Christian? And the reason we're asking that question is because of this, this quote, this phrase. I even, I even put it on the screen the way I wrote it down, which means it's not even in good English. It's just the way I read it, okay? This is, from the pre, this is what I heard. Average Americans, I didn't put average in, but Americans, they have increasingly become less likely to know even one evangelical Christian. That right now, in our culture, Americans have increasingly become less likely to be able to name or to know even one evangelical Christian. As I went back and looked at the study, I didn't understand that. That didn't make any sense to me. But it went on to talk about in the marketplace, in, in our workplaces, in our circles, that there are, there are people who know, you know, have, have in their lives, you know, in terms of lives past, they've know, they know who Christians are. And that that number is significantly reducing. Now, people immediately want to jump to, well, that means that the number of Christians is reducing. And that's not actually true. There's not really any other statistics that support that in terms of the, the loss, if you will, of the foot that, that, that Christianity has in our culture. The difference is people don't know who they are. People don't know. Like Bob at work knows, you know, Larry. Larry's an atheist, and he knows an atheist, and he he knows uh, this other guy here. He's a Buddhist or Hindu. Like he knows he's Eastern religion. And uh, Susan keeps talking about chakras and auras and energy, so he doesn't know what she is, but she knows she's something, right? And that they can actually name several things that they know, but it's becoming less likely that they even know one evangelical Christian. How is that possible? Because we know that Christians are here. We know that you, you are here. You exist in the workforce, in the marketplace, in these social circles. So how is it that it's becoming a place in our culture where Americans can say that it's less likely that they'll even know one? And after I read through it and looked through it and really just kind of really began to work through it in myself, what, what are we doing? How is it that Christians are perpetuating this problem? 
are a part of this problem. Because you can't get to a solution if you don't understand the problem. And here's just four things that I, as I read and as I have witnessed myself, four things that kind of play into this in terms of what we have control over. One is that there are, we really do have these closed Christian subculture groups. These closed networks of very small circles of Christians that sort of, you know, meet together, talk together, lean on each other, which is fine. We, we want intentional community. But they close their network off to where really the only people they know now are other Christians. And that's all. This is kind of a Christian subculture. Now, you take it a little bit further, and sometimes that people do that because they really have an us versus them mentality. So they're fearful of the evil in this world. They're fearful of the, of the others in this world who don't believe the way they believe. Or what's worse and full animus is that they, they really view them as the enemy. So the only way they actually engage the world or put a face to evil in this world is to, is to kind of put a face to people who don't believe like they believe, and they're the problem. The, they're all the problem for my Christian life. And so we have an us versus them mentality, which kind of can cause, number one, but also can cause a real problem in our hearts, number two, to even want to engage them. The third is a fear of rejection and persecution. That they're, you know, we'll call it what it is in our culture, the cancel culture, right? That, that because you believe what you believe, that people are going to reject you. They're going to cancel you. They're going to, they're going to put all the people who, who put all the haters and all the ones that are making it hard for everybody and put their, their beliefs onto you because you state that you believe in Christ and that you're a Christian. So there's fear of this rejection or even persecution. And the fourth is the worst is just pure apathy. Temporal and eternal, meaning apathy in terms of the right now. That people are having problems, that people are struggling in their life, but you don't actually think that your faith has any real answers for them now. And the worst part of apathy is that so many Christians live in that right now moment. They don't even live their lives with an eternal perspective. So why in the world would they care about anyone else's eternity? Guys, these four things are a problem. And there's more. Okay, there's more than this. These are just the four that, that came from the study and came, kind of came from my experience that, that we have a problem. Now, we can't, again, we can't get to the solution of how do we fix this? How do we solve this? How do we as followers of Christ not perpetuate this problem and begin to turn it around, begin to change it from having a world of secret Christians? And I really believe this is what the series is going to be about, but we're going to start today with kind of going back to the big story of God and the reason that it's such a big deal for us to acknowledge this problem and to really begin to ask ourselves the question, am, am I a secret Christian? Is that me? I'll, I'll, I'll share with you very quickly, this was the image that came to mind when I began to think about this series, and it was a kind of an old picture. This isn't the original one, obviously, but it was a picture of the old design of sort of the original uh, Edison light bulb, right? 
In the late 1800s, in case you know, Thomas Edison, he kind of perfected and worked on the way in to create light bulb from power. And he's part of the power conversation as well, but, but specifically the light bulb in terms of him kind of rooting and finding the very best thing he could find to sort of create light. And he, and he started off with bamboo thread. I don't know if you knew that, but it was bamboo thread. Why? Because out of everything that he tested and tried, bamboo thread could burn, okay, once connected to electricity, could burn for 1,200 hours before it would go out and you had to replace the bulb. Later on, early 1900s through GE, someone would, would kind of top this and found that basically uh, the thread idea was good and that's needed to happen, but uh, instead of using bamboo, they actually created a compound called tungsten, and it became what we still today, lots of incandescent lights, use that element to create light. That when it's plugged into the power source and, and, it, and it burns, because tungsten had this safest, highest energy, you know, rate of burning. Matter of fact, half the room, the, the lights in this room, all still function from this technology. In terms of power going through this thread and burning and glowing. It's not the bulb. It's not the vacuum-sealed bulb. It's just part of the process. The actual magic, if you will, the work, is in that filament, that thread. That was the real genius of the design. And so when I was thinking through it, I began to think through. That really is the reason the word filament actually means thread or to thread through. As I began to think about the story of God. In terms of the problem that we're facing with this secret Christian uh, culture is we've sort of lost the bigger picture. We've lost the thread, if you will, of what God intended when we read that theme verse of the fact that he intended us to be the light to the world. So I want to take us back. And it won't take us long, but I want to take you back and just begin to kind of weave and remind us of the thread of what needed to happen and why it is we arrived at this place where Jesus gives that very, very clear charge to us. Starts back in Genesis 1. And I'll go ahead and give you the, the points today in, uh, in the early part of it. But in Genesis 1, um, we're going to look at what that God created what was needed, okay? God created what was needed. And I'll explain that to you in the very first part here, but, but it was light. And if you remember the early creation story, I'll put it on the screen for you. But Genesis 1 1 says it this way In the beginning, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens. And the earth. But the earth was formless and empty. Depending on how you learned this, KJV and NIV, you know, you have different words, void, you know, formless and without void or without form. There's all sorts of ways in which we've learned this, but they all mean the same thing. It existed, but there was nothing there. It was empty. It was formless. It was, it was void. And darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the water. The Spirit of God was present there. And it goes on to say that God said, these four words, let's say them out loud together, let there be light. And there was light, right? And he saw that the light was good. And then he separated light from darkness. He gave form to separate light from darkness. God created, right at the very beginning, we went to see this thread. God created what was so desperately needed. Even in the creation story, nothing could happen. Nothing else could happen until 
light. Nothing was going to grow. Nothing else was going to happen. Nothing was going was to be able to be seen. Nothing was going to be able to be clear until he started with light. To take what was empty and create something. To take what was void and formless. He needed and created for it light. And, and to be honest, this is just encouraging to me because I, I, I just, this is the way I think about things. That this is the same thing that God started to do and he's been doing ever since then. Is people without him, without hope, without Christ in their life, really, ha- really exist in a sense and they are empty and they are void and they are formless in terms of how God created them. And the only thing that changes that is light. The only thing that changes it is the light. And that that light showed up not because of some experiment or thing that God did. That light came because of the voice and the word of God. His voice speaking those words gave light to everything. And it would for all the Old Testament. You would see story after story that his word would come and shine a light for his people. Shine a light for the people that called him God. That he would use that to light their way. As a matter of fact, we all have this on our phones, right? We can't, nobody can get around, around this without this. Maybe you have it on a flip like I do. But when you want to go somewhere and it's dark or you're looking at something, we're lost without this, right? Nod your head, right? We're lost without this. I got to grab my phone real quick and I got to have my light to kind of see where I'm going. Like this is just our lives right now with our phones the way they are. You know, this is, this is what we use. And at the same time, the Old Testament, the psalmist put it this way, because again, the thread of the story of God is that his voice, his word, gave them the light because God created what was needed for them. And he actually said the words, look, your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light to my path. You know, that your, your truth, your word right here was going to be able to be seen and heard and give direction and give clarity to our lives. That your word, your truth was going to be what we needed to see clearly, to move forward, to live how you've called us to live, to be who you've called us to be. He created what was needed by the very word of God. He gave light to all mankind. And this this is not just the, the source that we need to remember, the source of power of the light that we have been given, but it also represents the problem we're experiencing in our culture today, which is that when you close this and you shut down the word of God, You remove truth from your life, and you have no more light. When you close the book, when you no longer listen, when you're not really seeking to live that way by the voice and by the word of God, then you don't have light anymore for your path. It doesn't light your feet. It doesn't light your path. It doesn't give you clarity to see and move forward in direction. No, it just causes us to stumble around feeling our way, like a blind man, feeling our way forward. And guys, I can't think of a better picture of today's current culture, this humanistic worldview that we currently live in with relative truth that most people just function 
that what they feel is right and therefore must be true. What they feel is right is therefore true. And what you feel is right must be true for you. And what you feel is right must be true for you. And it's just all about how you feel and convincing yourself and others around you, the ones that will agree with you that it's right and therefore true. Guys, I'm not talking about this happening just within the the culture, the, the humanistic, you know, worldview and culture of those who don't know God. I'm talking about Christians. I'm talking about Christians who do not know the word of God, that do not, do not even think to look for the truth in his word to give light to their path, to give light to the, where they're walking. All they do is act just like everybody else. They just close it down and they start feeling their way. And whatever they feel is right, and whatever they feel that is right must be true. And guys, I'm just telling us, I'm just telling us as followers of Christ as a reminder, we need the truth of the word of God to be our light. We need it. Stop treating it like it's optional. We need it. Guys, your, your marriage needs light. Your family, your kids need light. Your identity needs the light of the truth of the word of God. Your finances, your future decisions, your purpose in this life. How Don't settle for just trying to feel your way to what you feel is right, therefore is true. You're going you're gonna to land somewhere that is empty and formless and void. No, God already created what was needed. And he gave us his word. He gave us the light so that we could be the new creation he's called us to be. Now, even through the thread of the story, God didn't, he created what was needed, but he, you know, early in Genesis, you know, things kind of fell off the rails and he knew that something was going to be needed to continue the bigger picture of light and life for the world. And so then God delivered what he promised. He delivered what he promised, which was life and light. I love this passage. I read it every Christmas. You'll probably hear it again this Christmas Eve from John 1. John's poetic way of sort of starting out the lineage of of the story of Jesus. He says, in the beginning, the word existed, already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. Talking about Jesus being the word of God. Go to verse 4. He says, the word gave life to everything that was created. And his life brought light to everyone. This was Jesus Christ. His life brought light to everyone. Keep going. And this light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. So it wasn't just about God fulfilling his promise because he did. He fulfilled his promise in the person of Jesus Christ. But he also, you know, did it with a purpose of allowing Jesus to live out the example of what light and life looks like. And and I think this is a big one, especially when you start reading the way the Old Testament looks and the way the New Testament looks, is, is that we as humanity needed a reminder that God's light, right, what he created, what we needed, that God's light in this world through the person of Jesus Christ would never be extinguished. 
you can't stop the light. You can't stop the light, okay? The Romans couldn't stop the light, okay? The Jewish leaders couldn't stop the light. The cross couldn't stop the light. The tomb couldn't stop the light. Y'all with me? Okay. This, is, this was the purpose of helping us understand not only that light and life would come in the person of Jesus, but how he lived, how he lived it out. He was going to shine light in the darkness and the darkness would not extinguish it. I'm not worried about the church today, guys. I'm not worried about the church. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church, my ecclesia, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I'm not worried about the church. I'm worried about this world in darkness that needs the light from us. Here's the Old Testament that passages that showed this thread continuing on. This is from Isaiah. You'll do more than restore people to Israel. I'll make you a light to the Gentiles. That's us, right? You're going to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This is speaking through to who Jesus would be. So now we're in the story. We get to be a part of the story. Matthew would quote these Old Testament uh, scriptures as well as he was writing to the Jewish people. And he would quote this from the Old Testament. It says, the people who sat in darkness, they've seen a great light. And for those who lived in the land where death cast its shadows, a light has shined. Jesus came to fulfill the promise that God delivered on his promises to give us light and life. He created what was needed. He delivered what he promised for us. And then... Jesus had the plan in terms of how God designed this. He had the plan to provide hope for this world, right? He was going to provide hope to this world. How was he going to do it? How was he going to do it? With secret Christians. He was going to do it by, 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 by trusting and, in, and really empowering and charging the people who are too scared to talk about their faith, who, who, who have closed networks of Christian friends and don't really talk to anybody else, who, who view everybody else outside of the faith as the enemy, as all the bad apples. You don't want to let them in. He was going to provide hope to this world by, by using all the people that were just scared to death of being canceled on social media and at their job and at their workplace so they don't say anything. Or even worse, the people that just don't care. They don't care that their brother and sister's going to hell. They don't care that their parents don't, don't, don't do this. They don't care that their, their best friends don't, don't believe in Jesus. They don't care. They don't care. They don't care enough to say anything. They don't care enough to do anything about it. They don't care enough to be the light. No, that's not his plan. Thank God that's not his plan. We've been working like it's his plan. We've been working like it's his plan because there's far too many based on the results of that survey of people that are just holding on to their faith nice and close to the chest and not letting anyone know that they're the light. We'll go back to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus gave that theme verse. We read that theme verse. Here was Jesus' actual plan. He said, you are the salt of the earth. He's talking to his followers. What good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It's going to be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. 
you are the light of the world. Like a city on the hilltop that can't be hidden. I love the fact that Jesus loves sarcasm too. He says to them, look, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Nod your head if you're with me, right? Yeah, no one lights a lamp, puts it under the basket. The lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. He says, in the same way, I want your good deeds to shine out. This is the charge. This is the call for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly father. Everyone's going to thank him and praise him for you being the salt and for you being the light. So that's his plan, right? That's his plan. He's going to provide hope to this world by salt and light. And that U.S. is not the U.S.A. That's us. Okay? You and me. You and me. He's called us to be the salt and light. The salt wasn't just a, a, a being used to preserve things. Salt was the way, you always use the way it is used now. It brings out flavor. It brings out the, the experience. It amplifies what's there. That's who we're called to be. He said, this is what, if you, if you are not going to be this person, if you lose the saltiness, if, you, if you're really ineffective, then you are worthless to the mission of God. That's what you are. Your salt, the saltiness just gets thrown out. It's worthless in terms of what it was meant to be. And Jesus gives the contrast of the city on a hill. He says, look, every night darkness comes. It's a pretty regular rhythm. Every night darkness comes. And the only way people, sojourners, find their way, people traveling from place to place, the only way kids know where to come back is because they built cities on hills and when they would light up the city, their candles and their lamps, people would know where to go. Darkness was always going to be around. Darkness was always going to be a regular rhythm. He said, but you, you're going to be the light of the world. You're going to be like that city that's on a hill that cannot be hidden. Here's the way Paul said it to the church of God, church of God in Philippi. He said, I want you to do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Go back to the last series and watch No Offense, period. Okay. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like, what's the words? Bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Hold firmly to the word of truth. Then one day, when the day of Christ's return, I will be proud of what I did and ran, did not run that race in vain or my work was not useless. Paul's again reminding them that, look, there is a worthless equation here. If you don't hold tightly to the truth... And you don't live lives in such a way that have been transformed by that truth of the light that God created for you, then it's pretty much worthless. You're running the race in vain. That's why he said you gotta, you got to hold tightly to the truth and let it be the light for you. Let it be the light for you. Now, I want to, before we close out, we're going to talk more about this over the next few weeks. But I want to just give you a quick challenge 
as to where did things begin to come off the rails, okay? Where did some of this culture of secret Christians creep into the church, creep into your life, creep into kind of the Christian culture in in the Western world? Where did it happen? Well, it happened probably 30 to 50 years ago when everyone kind of functioned in what I would call a guilt and shame culture. There's many cultures in the world that still function this way. But in terms of the, uh, the Western world, there were still in the 40s and 50s and 60s, there was still a little bit of a common culture of guilt and shame. And so the church, for some reason, the church began to teach the truth of the word of God. They began to teach the word of God because the word of God is truth. And they started making it all about being right. And how they, how they evangelized and how they worked themselves into this is they would teach the truth of the word of God and what was convenient to them. And they would share that message, but they would do so to make sure that they were right and everyone else was wrong. This is the continuation of denominations as well. That they were right and everyone else is wrong. And the problem is, is that starting around the early 1900s, the seed formed in Christians and followers of Christ that we felt that to be right was what God wanted us to do. That God wants us to be right. Holding to his truth, yes, but to be right above all things. And the problem again, going back to our current culture, is that we, we're sort of living in this swirling dish of relative truth of which everybody gets to be right. Unless you disagree with me, then you're wrong. And we get to argue about it. And you can walk away from an argument feeling like you were right and you told them, and they'll walk away and go, no, I'm right and they're wrong. Because relative truth doesn't leave any room for there to be absolute truth. So Christians have gotten into this place of, well, I don't have all the right answers. I don't know how what to say if somebody asked me this, so I probably shouldn't say anything at all because we were told at some point and we were modeled at some point that the goal for our lives was to be right in order for other people to be wrong. Don't confuse being right with truth, okay? Well, just picture Jesus. Was there anybody more right than Jesus, right? Couldn't he have just showed up and just walked out when he was 13 years old? Wrong, you know? Walking around, disciples asking questions like, Lord, isn't there some way? And Jesus, whatever you're about to say, wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong and you're wrong and you're wrong and you're wrong and you're wrong. Was there anybody more right than Jesus? No. But Jesus didn't see it his ultimate goal to be right. He saw what he was going to be living out in terms of the light and life of God for this world was to draw them in, to teach them, to show them, to to do this by example in their life. There's nobody more right than Jesus. Yet that's not what he chose to do. Don't confuse right with truth. Your desire to be right above all else is nothing more than to feed your ego of relative truth to you. That's it. 
your desire to be right is going to feed your ego and your position that you think you're right. You got your eight Bible verses that you've memorized. You know them. And you've got them loaded up in a gun to have those arguments and debates and conversations with people where you're right and they're wrong. But your desire to be right above all else is still just about you. It's just about your ego. It's just about your relative truth. Guys, the truth is salt and light. That's what this is. Instead of worrying about being right, worry about being salt and light. Worry about this transforming you so that you shine bright to this world. That's what this is for. It's for you and me to shine, to be bright. Not to be right, but to be bright. Because it all goes back to him. It all points back to him, not to you, not to your ego, not to your pride, not to your absolute truth. Points back to him. Here's how Paul said it to the, to the church in Philippi. He said it this way. Oh, sorry, this is 2 Corinthians. You're right. We're going to 2 Corinthians. We have this light shining in our hearts, talking about the word of God. But we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing a great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God and not from ourselves. Right? That, that, that makes it clear. The more fragile the vessel the more clear the, where the power comes from. You all with me? Okay, okay we're the fragile clay jars, just to let you know in this, in this example. We're the fragile clay jars, all broken and cracked and barely held together in a broken and cracked world. But we hold this light in us. And when people see it and when we shine it and we let it out, when we're the salt and the light by the truth of the word of God, people see it and they recognize God, not us. Is there anything more fragile than the filament in a light bulb? Go home and shake one. Tell me if you, if you know what I'm talking about, right? Is there anything more fragile, you know, than, 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 a, than a filament in a light bulb? And yet, and yet that, even though as we talked about, that's where the magic happens, right? That's what actually makes the light. And yet, you know what's really funny? If you went out one night on a date, you were heading out, you, you left the lamp on, you left the lights in the upstairs run and all that sort of thing, you, you left the house. And if you came home and the house were completely dark, would your first thought be, man, those filaments? I wonder what's wrong with those things. I wonder, I wonder what's wrong with those filaments. Would that be your first thought? No, your first thought would be, the power's out, right? The power's out. Why? Because the light is a testament to the power that it's plugged into. It's not about the light bulb. It's nothing without the power. So you came home and there was no lights on, it'd be, it's, a, it's like the, you'd immediately think, well, there must be something wrong with the power. Power's out. Guys, it's not any different for us. I continue to go back to this over and over again, and you'll hear more about this in the next few weeks. It's not about you, and it's not about us. We're just called to live out a role. We're called to live out being salt and light to this world. 
But I'm telling you, when you do it, it doesn't point back to you and you being right. It points back to him and it points back to the power. We are the testament or testimony of the power of God and the light that he created and the, and the promise that he delivered and the hope to this world. That's what we're called to do. That's who we are. So just wrestle with this question. Are you? Like, are you a secret Christian? If I were to challenge you this week and say, you know, I'm going to give you two options. You can't come back to Journey if you don't do these two things. One of these two things. This is not true, by the way. Let me just say that a lot. Let's just say this is a challenge. This week, you have to post online the testimony of when you came to, to faith and life in Jesus Christ and how that faith and belief in him has changed your life. Or you have to post and tell people what, you know, what political party you are. Right? Nine days of the election, no more of a hot mess than it currently is. Do you know that there's a lot of Christians that would struggle? There's a lot of Christians that would struggle. They would weigh the costs as to what one would mean versus the other. That's the only reason I'm asking you guys. Don't, don't just let it sl slide by. Are you a secret Christian? Or are you really fully engaged in living out the light of life in your light? You're allowing that light to transform you to be the salt and light and to shine bright in this world. Because that's what we're called to do. That's who we are. I'll read that message paraphrase one more time as we close. You're here to be the light. Bringing out the God colors, I would even say flavors, right? Into this world by his truth. God is not a secret to be kept. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for today. I thank you for the way this message has just challenged me in my own personal life. That ultimately, God, it's even with my role, even with my job, it's far too easy. Far too easy for me, God, to close my network off to just me and my Christian friends. It's far too easy for me to view and put a face to the enemy in terms of people who don't know you. It's far too easy to get apathetic. And God, it's just far too easy to allow fear or anxiety or worry about how people will see me or judge me or view me. And God, I just, I confess that to you. I confess that those are all still temptations for me. And yet God, by your word and by the challenge, just you created the light for us to carry and to be salt and light in this world. And, and my job, God, my role is to be bright. Live by your truth and to be bright. Not so people would see that I'm right, but to see you and to experience that hope and light in their life. God, I pray for those watching today and those in the room that you would just begin with this seed of a challenge. Let us wrestle with it over the next few weeks as we discuss how this looks in our lives and how we live this out. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.